welcome to another episode of Three Wise DFs, the podcast where three dungeon masters have been doing this for <laughs> way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. I'm watching somebody's world at an end, and wondering if someday we'll love again. Shadows in the mirror, tell me I'm wrong. Shadows in the mirror, tell me that we're through. That that is our rock and roll DM, DM Dave, (laughs) kicking it with, uh, actually, I don't recognize that song at all. I was waiting to see, because it's kind of deep cutty in a way, but not really, I don't know. Uh, Chris Isaac. Uh, All I know from Chris Isaac is is, uh, Wicked Game. Oh, that's unfortunate, because, wow, what a a career. What a career. Yeah, that's from, uh, that's Shadows in a Mirror from the album Forever Blue, which is, and this is, from somebody who's in music for a long, long time, is the ultimate breakup record of all time. Front to back, ultimate. Wow, that's quite a title. Go listen to it, front to back. It's like a perfect record. You don't skip a single track. Wow. And it's Chris Isaac singing, and he's literally one of the most beautiful voices ever made. I did. I remember when Wicked Games said it, because that was literally the first time I'd heard of them. Oh, sure. That that was a haunting, haunting tune. Oh, yeah, dude. And one of the sexiest videos ever made as well. Absolutely. I forget what the model was in that. But, yeah, that was was, uh, memorable. Definitely very memorable. Yeah, so do yourselves a favor, audience. Go check out Chris Isaac. And check out what this is tied to, because Shadows in the Mirror, foreshadowing a breakup, is sort of what we're talking about here today. Not about a breakup, but we have a listener question from Bewildered in Barovia. Bewildered, thank you very much for writing in. And the subject is foreshadowing. Can I just um, break in real quick? Because I love that they gave us a total radio name for the listener, right? It's like Sleepless <laughs> in Seattle, right? I just Bewildered really appreciate in Barovia. that. Yeah, I just appreciate that. I just wanted that to be known. Okay, continue. Absolutely. That was pretty cool. I mean, It is, it is. <laughs> Bewildered in Barovia asked this. I'm a new DM, and I'm looking for some advice on how to approach foreshadowing in my campaign. I want my players to feel that their actions have consequences while also dropping hints about what is going on in the overarching story. I don't want to make it too heavy-handed that the players feel railroaded into following every plot hook I can throw at them, but I don't want to make the foreshadowing so delicate that it gets completely overlooked time and again. How do I set up the narrative to foreshadow major events without beating my players over the head with it or having it go unnoticed? So, um... I'm not sure beating your players over the head with foreshadowing is the worst thing, given, like, as we've said, you got to repeat things a few times to get them to stick. There is what truth. do you guys think? There is truth there, yeah. I, I have to take the low-hanging fruit here, which is there's got to be a balance between the foreshadowing and the red herring, because you draw too much attention to the wrong directions, or then you have players who are trying to make something out of nothing. And sometimes they have some really interesting ideas, but, you know, they could easily go off the rails and go in the wrong direction. And next thing you know, they're spending time on something that really does not pertain to where you're going. And you're like, crap, they missed it. But if they do miss it, don't drop a bomb on them. It's not foreshadowing. If you're like, hey, I'm going to do something subtle. Bam! No, I'm doing something subtle. Like, there's. <laughs> well, yeah. And Thor, you said it very correctly there. Like, there, you can't really soft sell. You can't soft pitch foreshadowing in a game. 
Uh, as much as you might see, like, on YouTube and stuff, you watch Critical Role, they're all, like, wildly, you know, hanging on every word that's happening because they're actively filming what's happening, right? So there, it's a little, it's another level. Uh, your players are not necessarily going to be doing that. So you can't soft pitch it. You have to uh, say it and you have to repeat it in a way uh, and make it um, very direct. Uh, you can still do it cryptically. And I will say they, you know, Bewildered in Barovia, my guess is they are probably running Curse of Strahd in some fashion. And they're trying to open up the immense amounts of plot and story and adventure hooks like we've talked about Um so the way that for me, if this is if this is what you're doing, if you're running Curse of Strahd and you're not already well into it, uh, what I did was once the players got to the village of Barovia and met the Vistani sisters that ran the Blood on the Vine Tavern, at that point I had a whole dream sequence, vision sequence that I texted each person individually before the next game that the sisters were telling these stories and they all heard things about a temple of amber they heard about you know um things about oregon bolst holt they heard about a barbarian king in the west they heard it so i peppered it in in that way to drop those hooks directly onto specific players so they would be like "Ooh, i need to go look at that yeah you know i think about how i foreshadow in my games i tend to like a bit of a uh a build-up approach to the way the story unfolds across the campaign. And you see this, you know, and we've talked about kind of how I introduced things in Woodstock Wanderers, and it's not so much the foreshadowing often with me isn't clues in the background, although I did that some with when I introduced Strahd. Uh, I've done a little bit of that, like with other people relaying things about what that was about. But the main, the main story arc, you know, there's this, there's this love crafty and horror inside the world that's going to break it like an egg. We talk about it like every episode. And the way I kind of <laughs> foreshadowed that, like the way I built up to it, though, was, OK, players start with a, you know, we have loggers and miners going missing where they're getting kidnapped by goblins. Go investigate and clean out the goblins. Well, they catch up to the goblins and they found out the goblins are, you know, they've, they've got, you know, they, they wind up kind of tangling with the goblins. And some of the goblins, there's priests with them. And those, some of those priests turn into shambling mounds. So you start to get the sense that the goblins are connected to something much more otherworldly. This isn't a normal goblin kind of thing. Something else is going on here. And so they keep chasing them, and they wound up eventually kind of realizing that they're actually taking these people as sacrifices to get away, to, to take somewhere else. And so they start kind of hearing about, okay, well, the goblins aren't just kidnapping people to eat them or ransom them. They're taking sacrifices to this cult. And then they get to the cult. In the cult, they look down and they start hearing the, the name Gadanafwa starts coming up. That there's a thing there. And then they're kidnapped. And then they wind up themselves getting beaten down and taken to be sacrifices by the cult. And one of the players sees the crack they're going to be thrown into is full of these massive world-sized writhing, writhing tentacles with eyes all over them. And so it's kind of like. I like that kind of buildup where it's not the buildup isn't secondary too often foreshadowing. We rely on a clue here, a clue there that the players maybe get, maybe don't, maybe don't get. I kind of like the kind of foreshadowing that goes as you go adventure to adventure, more stuff's unfolding and it's getting bigger and bigger. Absolutely. And that's very, it's very, um, it's foreshadowing, but it's very foreground foreshadowing. It is the, the, you know, something is unfolding in front of them. It's not, re it's not relying on them to pick up this name here and that name there. 
on the other hand, when Strahd came in, I did a little bit of that where, you know, there's some undead attacks. Where are they coming from? Oh, this one country's got a bunch of undead. What's that about? Oh, there is this, this, this famous, uh, this, this famous demiplane ruler Strahd has found a way to get a foothold in their world. That whole, that unfolded a little more in the wings, but when we dealt with it, it was a front and center kind of thing. Like they eventually met Strahd and talked to him. So it's, you can foreshadow some, but I am a big fan of the use of the unfolding plot more than the kind of shadowy foreshadowing plot for a D and D game well, where the players may not remember game to game what the clue was. And also, I think just to just to kind of piggyback off that too, Thor, because I think that's a good point. In that, when we talk about things like foreshadowing, if we're talking about a novel, if we're talking about a movie or a television program or something like that. That's a little different if the story is already put together. You can foreshadow because you already know exactly what's going to happen because you're writing it and you're filming it and you're showing it or whatever, or you're reading it. But in the game, you can't, it's not foreshadowing. Uh, we're using that term, but what you're really doing is you're dropping additional plot information that will make them want to go seek that. Going back to the Woodstock Wanderers, the first thing we uncovered when we hit that Goblin Warren was this this talk about the snakes of the Alakir. And that almost almost was a clue that kept us going forward, but that then was kind of brushed off when we realized that it was the big threat of this crazy tentacle monster thing. And the snakes of the was kind of the cult surrounding that. That is a cult, yeah. Right, but it that kind of went a little bit to the side because then we realized what the big thing was. But that wasn't as much foreshadowing as you leading us deeper into the adventure through the clues that we get, you know? That and just is, to be clear, the, the snakes of the Alakir were the ones waking up God and So they were important, and you have dealt with them. It's just... Yeah, by the time you get there, there's not as many of them left because the leader's been sacrificing his own cultist. <laughs> to, yeah, now there's just one guy. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. not one guy. Maybe not one guy. We'll see how that plays out. But, you know, but there's also, you know, there's some other things that have come up from there, too, that weren't sacrificable. Like, um, what are they? The uh, the, the, the undead warlocks uh, came up. You know, I don't know that Flynn's would be sacrificable. We'll see. We'll see what you guys run into when you get up there. Right. I think we're talking about kind of a plot development versus foreshadowing a bit. Yeah, it's, it is excellent that things develop through the plot that makes the players see that their actions have consequence, that they're driving this story. The things they have done or have not done, have explored or have not, have played out in the overarching story. That is indeed fantastic. But if we're talking foreshadowing, I think Castlevania did it really well mm. uh, at certain points. One of my characters that I really like there was indeed Varney. Um, and he foreshadowed things throughout the story. Uh, yeah, spoilers. Uh, he, he's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And he seemed like a joke character. He's a jackass. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's laughable. Um, he, he thinks he's really fantastic and everybody thinks he's an idiot. And then at the end of the, the show, you find he's actually deaf. And he, he was actually really, truly the mastermind. And there's this great meme about how Varney was when the uh, the joke character is the BBEG. That That's foreshadowing to me. Well, then how do they foreshadow it, though? Like, what about that? That's something like when Jar Jar Binks was supposed to be the, uh, yeah, the Jar actual Jar Binks Phantom Menace, right? Yeah, that's exactly so, that. So what taxes, what tactics did they use to foreshadow that, though? So he made comments 
and did things throughout the series. So he had this persona where he was this laughable character. He's like, oh, I'm like, he was basically this half baked, half wit, low level vampire boss that was on the outs of, uh, I said, it was said Strahd, Dracula's vampire court. Yeah, he was definitely appeared to be the low man of the totem pole, occupying a destroyed city in the middle of nowhere that had no military or strategic value. But he was actually orchestrating everything to bring Dracula back. And he made comments. He's like, you know, I've been around for blah, 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 a thousand years. And you don't know what I am. He was one guy was mouthing off to him. And that sounded laughable because he sounded like such a jackass. Like, yeah, of course, you were at the crucifixion, right? <laughs> of course you were, Mr. Vampire. But he probably was. So he actually turns out to be death in the end? Surprise, yes, he's death. So so in the Castlevania, the cartoon, when that yes. comes up, that actually comes from the video game. Um. Well, the thing there with uh, Varney is a character who predates Dracula, I'm to understand. He actually was a vampire from London, ironically. They took this character and spun him. I'm not super familiar with him in the literature specifically, but he predates Dracula. So when he makes comments about how old he is, of course, no one takes him seriously. They're like, yes, of course, you're you're around when Rome was a fort city. That's adorable. (laughs) But, you know, he's actually making, uh, he's being serious. So I guess the tactics they're using there to foreshadow are number one, if you know your vampire literature, you might recognize Varney as an older vampire than Dracula. Number two, he's telling you all along that he is an older vampire than Dracula. You just don't believe him. No. Nope. And, 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 and does he ever kind of hint at himself being death itself? Uh, no, no, they dropped that in like the last episode and a half where they're like, like Dracula's coming back any minute. And he's like, Oh, he's telling the guy who he was manipulated the whole, the whole time. He's like, Oh, you do know me. I was this other character surprise. And <laughs> Yeah, things like that, you can definitely, that is definitely a point if it is a major player within the storyline. That is a time where I think uh, there is actual foreshadowing as opposed to like we're talking about with like plot development or like hooks. Um, And that's what I was going, if it did turn that way, uh, I decided to turn uh, Vasily von Holtz. So in the Curse of Strahd campaign, it's like Strahd's alter ego and he just kind of like goes and trolls uh the barovians in a way and the adventurers as a human you know he kind of hides himself uh i changed him to uh to victor van royen uh mainly because i wasn't sure if tony would know the name having played a lot in ravenloft so i i changed the name up entirely unfortunately we didn't really get much time to develop that relationship but that would have been a time because i know that this is a major player that is central to the overarching story that I can start to throw these little things out that after the fact, you'll go, holy shit, he would, he said that. We were sitting there having drinks with him at the bar and he said, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's a time you can foreshadow. But like I said, as opposed to novels, movies, TV shows, whatever, where it's already put together, the game is unfolding. So I would make the point like I did with the Amber Temple. When you guys finally got there, now, you, you went there because you were looking for, you knew that uh, one of the icon, one of the uh, the artifacts was going to be in the Amber Temple, so you had to get there. But I didn't know what was going to happen and unfold where all of you guys made deals with the Amber Temple. What that then turned into was I was able to say, oh, this is a whole new level of story, and that's where I could bring in the idea of the dark powers 
and the prison of it and how they could possibly be unleashed. Once you take the, the deal, it, it weakens the prison and Vampire appears and all this kind of stuff. That came not because I could foreshadow it, but because your uh, your actions themselves led me to go, ah, that is absolutely story that can be that can be drawn. Battle hmm. fought moment in the game. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was I don't actually, know. Phineas is quite proud of it. It was one of the greatest because that is what, in essence, I built the entirety of this second arc after like, you know, uh, second tier onwards out of was was what happened there was when you guys went evil and the rest of the party also took deals i went oh okay this could be something now once you defeat strad you know which is the the final of the book you know yeah so let's see what about in uh your games tony how have you used foreshadowing in the games you've run uh what i like to do is like to outline some of the like the like there's a big plot reveal for example Write it down, break it up, and then consider where organically you can introduce this. So, for example, they're digging around for information, they go see a seer, they use some divination, whatever. The point is then they've got an opportunity to learn a clue for this. You give them something or perhaps someone says something in passing so it's not that obvious. Mm-hmm. And – they may miss it. Like I said, don't drop the sledgehammer on them if they don't, because then you failed at that. Then you're like, this is a clue. Like, you know. <laughs> but later, give somebody an opportunity. Like, you know, when it comes up again, be like, hey, Roderick, you're pretty savvy. Give me a uh, insight check. And you remember X. 35. That's my insight. Excellent. You're always, yeah, you're, 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 you're catching all the insights. Well, but that's interesting too, because you bring up a good point of how can you use foreshadowing in D and D? And one of the risks of it that we've talked about is that you can foreshadow and be, you can leave a clue that the party just doesn't remember, you know, cause mm-hmm. you're not generally recapping, Oh, you guys found a letter with his name in it. However, you then can do the whole, Hey, you know, when you guys make me an insight check, you remember you heard this. So you can foreshadow but rather than rely on your on your player putting it together themselves like you would in a novel, because in a novel you want to let the, the the reader put it together for themselves. But you know, there's a lot going on in the game. Players don't pick up on everything, so you can bring it back up yourself when the time is right. And actually, we do that all the time, where it's like the DM remembers you foreshadowed something and the party's not remembering it. You're like, hey, make me an insight check, oh, or or like a perception, a memory check or something, an intelligence check, whatever. It's like you remember you found this thing in that place and it kind of clicks to you, you know, and you can, so you can sort of, you can foreshadow as light or as heavy as you want, but then when the time comes that you wish they remembered it and they don't, you can force it. <laughs> it's absolutely true. We've done, we've all done that where we pull it back uh, again. Uh, even if you don't ask for a role, you just go, no, you remember X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure I don't have a 20 wisdom and I have an audio photographic memory of everything. Like, yeah, Roderick would be like, I remember where we parked, you know, like 100% of the time. Dave being the note taker. Uh, that, well, that's a big thing. I mean, I'm definitely a big note taker. Um, and and that has come in handy because, you know, uh, that helps me to, to try to stay involved in the game and remember where we were and what was happening. So it's it's a way that I try to be a good player and stay invested in, in, in the game and my character. Uh, I would really say too, this is nicely with my style of just living in the moment, man. 
Living in the moment. <laughs> yeah, but as I've said before, uh, you as a player oftentimes are you remember things uh, just because you're in the game uh, and you will translate that over sessions. I remember that very specifically from one of the Slavers Bay um, sessions uh, where I realized that you were really paying attention to what I had been saying. You know, I won't catch all the details, but I'll catch I'll, I'll catch the plot I want to go after. Yeah, kind of and also, you're, because of the way your mind works, you'll start deducing things and go, oh, yeah. no, see, because this, 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 pop, 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 pop. You'll do the, the Sherlock thing on it. I'll say what changed this for me, and I, I shout out to him all the time, because this one, one prep tip uh, changed my entire style, uh, was Mike Shea's The Secrets and Clues thing. Yeah, uh, that he yeah. talks about in the lazy DM. So the the general idea is that you have secrets or clues that you about your world, about the story, about backstories, about plot hooks, whatever it might be. Whether you're trying to build lore, whether you're trying to build hooks for the for the further adventure, while you're while you're trying to bring characters, backstories involved into the into the game. Each session you're writing ten, and his point why there's ten is. You're going to knock out five or six just like that. Not a problem. You already know where the story Those last three or four are going to make you work for it. But what that does is that now you just have random information. It's not tied to an NPC. It's not tied to a location. It's not tied to a journal. It's not tied to anything. It's just tied to when you want to drop it. So when the players start finding things, they knock down a wall and there's a mural that reveals XYZ or they're talking to the the scholarly uh, gentleman that they whatever it is. But it allows you to drop these information, these foreshadow moments, plot development in a way that is very freeform. Uh, you can you can put it in wherever you want and then you can bring those over. I oftentimes will bring over uh, the ones that I think are important into my next session. And I'll start with those so that I don't forget that I want to try to get them in when I can. Yeah, Dave is the master of the recap. And that is a fantastic way to keep everybody's information, minds, and thoughts kind of more focused where it needs to be. Like in your Curse of Strahd game, I mean, I'm pretty invested in that game, but yeah. I guarantee you there is stuff I've missed or I kind of kind of skimmed over my head or really would have skimmed over Hawk's head. Because, like, yeah. you know, certain things about elven etiquette or, you know, I'm trying to, like, you know, stay in character when you're revealing things about the twins. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who would anything about those guys, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> Although, doesn't Hawk actually have surprisingly good intelligence and wisdom? Yeah, that's all part of it. But he pretends to be this. Hawk has wrestler. surprisingly good everything. <laughs> yeah, Hawk is like, yeah, Hawk, Hawk is uh, attribute wise kind of a broken character. You could have played a first edition paladin with those stats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, the dice fall where they fall. You know? They do. So I guess in your guys experience, you're trying to use foreshadowing your games. What has not worked for foreshadowing for you versus what has? Do you have any sense of like, this is too little, this is too much? It is really more difficult to do foreshadowing in a game that's infrequent. So if we're playing weekly, bi-weekly, you want to start dropping stuff all around, then they're much more likely than once per month because, seriously, that's much more challenging. It doesn't even matter how savvy your players are. Unless they're all amazing note-takers. That's why like, I like Dave's method where you put out the recap, you bring everybody together on things, 
And then you rely on the character's stats sometimes to help reel it in versus, you know, what can your character, what can you personally remember about a game you played five and a half weeks ago when you worked 12 hours today? Yeah. I don't rely on that as heavily. That is absolutely true. I would say the the thing that doesn't work is, as I said earlier, soft pitching it. You can't be gentle about it. You're not going to get that cool foreshadow moment that you had in the TV, in the Game of Thrones episode that you were watching because everyone was so wide and you could see the people, they were in character. You were literally watching it unfold in front of you. That's not what's happening at your table. It is a game. You always have to remember you're playing a game and everyone is is listening at different rates and all of that. Like Tony just said too, that that frequency of play, all of that, who is at your table? So if you have a bunch of of Thorins and Tonys and Chris's, they're going to remember everything because two of them will be taking a crap ton of notes and the other one will just be like, oh yeah, and this is how it all fits together, right? I also think just from my experience, smaller groups, I think you can pull that stuff a little more because again, things are just quicker back and forth. Um, but I don't know if that's actually true or not. I'm just, that's that's what I'm kind of playing with with the girl group in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I'm not, uh, I haven't been doing a lot of foreshadowing because I've been letting the story kind of build. Uh, now I'm starting to drop in some of those plot points and see which ones stick. That's the thing too. Not every plot point, as Thorne said earlier, is gonna stick. You don't know. And if you want that one to stick, you gotta bring it back around somewhere. You gotta keep bringing it back around without being, like Tony said, with the sledgehammer. Um, that's that's one of the tough. You have to repeat it though. That's what I've noticed the most. You gotta put it out there for them. Well, I mean, for when you're DMing a group, especially whenever you're DMing, you're really DMing against the distractions, right? <laughs> People are there. They're, especially if they're in person, they're talking to each other, they're engaging with other things, they're getting their pizza order, they're eating, they're going to the bathroom. If you're all, if you're on Skype or you're on you're on Roll Twenty, well, you know they're on their phones. There's stuff happening in the background. They're only listening so much. So I think when you the advantage of a smaller group is you can command their attention a little better. Mm. Um, with a larger group, you got to look work a little harder for it. And I do think you especially the time you give everyone a chance to do their thing and everyone a chance to kind of have their moment. I do think a larger group, you can't fit as much detail and therefore as much foreshadowing in as you might want to. Um, and getting people to remember it gets really hard because they're more focused on what their character is doing, less focused on, hey, here's this clue I dropped three, three sessions ago, which as Tony mentioned, might be three months ago or four months ago or six months ago, depending on how often you play. So, you know, that sort of thing does make a difference as far as what kind of storytelling choices you can make. You know, like Dave was saying, or Tony was saying, uh, it's it's not going to be like your Game of Thrones reveal because people are not sitting there obsessing over what's happening on the TV. It's it's more of a, you know, you got to make sure that they catch it. You've got to make sure that that it sticks because you can't just count on that kind of undivided attention. And the way people watch a movie or the way people, you know, read a book is much more detail oriented than how they engage with a role-playing game, in, in my opinion, and in, in my experience. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. After Thorn session, you're not going to have like, I see Reddit articles. Like, did you miss this Easter egg McGee left behind? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I Which wish people, did, I think. Very helpful. And that's where I think people can sometimes get a 
uh, a false sense of, you know, the quote right way to talk about things, you know, uh, or or to, to run a game because something like Critical Role, for instance, right? I think they're they're going to play that game whether they're on TV or not. I absolutely believe that. I don't, you know, I don't think that that's. Well, they started. They, they started before that. Absolutely, yeah. and that's just who they are. But what you're seeing is fans watching this, and they're watching it invested in the story that's unfolding in the same way as we're going to talk about Stranger Things and Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and what's going to happen next. Oh, what do you think here? I think this, and I here's my fan theories about it, right? That's just not – I mean, if it happens in your game, that's awesome. But It know. might if we start putting our games on YouTube. That is also true. That is also true. You know, but it is that is a different medium, you know, than when you're around the table with your friends gaming. So, yeah. Great. Yeah, we put our game on YouTube and like three sessions in that one player would be like, aha, this is the villain. And it all gets ruined for me. <laughs> <laughs> but Thorn, uh, to your point earlier that you just were saying, too, that's what I just occurred to me. Um, I kind of forgot and it occurred to me again. Um that's a good point. Also, as they start to you, you put it in front of them and you get it out there, but you also have to make sure they got it. You also have to make sure, are they getting it in the way that you were trying to convey it? Where you've said on many occasions, you'll stop and be like, no, 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 no. That's not what your players are, are gaining <laughs> from this. Depending, like there are times where you can be a little more liberal with that if the players are taking it in a certain way. But sometimes you want them to understand what you're trying to put forth in the way you're putting yeah. it forth too. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a two, two. Yeah. And it is thing. where that kind of whole idea that on the one hand, it's a collaborative storytelling game, but on the other hand, you've got plans, right? And sometimes yeah. those plans rely on the players reading it the way you wanted them to read it. Even if you screwed up and how you delivered it and yeah, mea culpa, but here's more what your, what your characters got from that. Uh, because that's going to be important for how this plays out later. I can't have you thinking this guy is the good guy and that guy is the bad guy. It's uh, well, maybe you can. I don't know. It depends on the situation, but I got to be mindful of how it turns out to be death in the end. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. He's death. Ah, yeah. So, what about you know? What do you think's really worked really well for your foreshadowing? I like to try to use a bunch of different angles for one particular point. So you can kind of keep building on it. So instead of just advancing, you know, the secret reveals, then something perhaps nobody's really specifically caught, then put like a different a slight clue, slight clue. Someone will get it. You just got to be patient. Yeah, those are excellent that, that occur in the story. I, I mean, I'm not against being cheesy and heavy handed. Uh, I love visions. I love dreams. I love, uh, you know, weird stories that weave a tale that all of a sudden turns into a vision, like I just explained that I did with Curse of Strahd. I have no issue. If you're, like, Sir Scar has gotten so many goddamn visions from Torag. I mean, like, I built an entire religion over the time of this campaign, you know? Uh, Fenris gets information, you know, from that. Uh, Phineas gets information from the gentleman, things like that. Like, I have no problem using your gods, your patrons, your, 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 uh, whoever you got to just force feed you the information. But I think the reason that that works is I'm oftentimes, as I've said, giving that to individual players. 
like what I did with the sisters at the Blood of the Vine, where I opened up a lot of the plot points that they're going to find as they venture deeper into Barovia now that they just arrived. That was something that I sent individual stories to every single player. I sent six different stories to each player. When somebody gets that, they're going to pay way more attention because that feels like it's for them. You know, and that can, like I said, that can turn really bad when I did it with the Taraka deck reading, where I, I tried to pull them in and make it feel real special, but it was meant to be for the party, and they read it the way I, you know, gave it. But, like, visions, dreams, I got no problem using that and being as heavy-handed as I need to be for big stuff. Still oh cryptic, but, you know, very heavy-handed. <laughs> like I said, I, I like it better when it's kind of an unfolding in front of them. Um, rather than relying on people to put together things on the side. Although, then again, when Tony, we were playing the uh, the fourth edition game with... Um, Cassidus. Cassidus, right. A lot we of us, edition, yeah. We were playing the fourth edition game with Cassidus. Tony had this guy who had him keep going out and looking at looking for like these kind of forbidden tomes, like a Thulu-esque lore. And I feel like that did foreshadow in a way that Tony didn't catch up to, that this guy was eventually going to be a bad guy. And then, yeah, we've, we've already heard about the the kind of, oh, you think I'm going to come quietly moment Tony ran into with him, where he turns into an eldritch horror when Tony's alone in the room with him and starts attacking. Yeah, it was, that was the Emperor Palpatine moment. That's where, like, Mace Windu went in there to go arrest him, and he's and uh, he was not coming uh, peacefully in the name yeah. of the Jedi Council. Are you threatening me, Master Jedi? <laughs> great scene. You seem to be under the impression that I'm going to, how, how do they say it? Come quietly. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the problem. Cassius was not a good guy. So like, I was a real, real gray character. And he was just too out of bounds for me to work with. That's the tragedy there. Because he was actually my, <laughs> what, my, one of my, that character's few actual friends in that world. He, he did save it in the end. He was just, you know, he, he, was, he was led down the path to the uh, Cthulhu side. I don't know if they call it the dark side or, or the outer or the or the the outer limits or the you know place man was not meant to meant to walk, but that's where he was pulled to. But I do feel like that's a game where I feel like I did a good job foreshadowing. Hey, these are books you probably don't want to read. Oh, you're going after them anyway, and then stuff happened. Like you know, I think <laughs> I feel like there there was the I hear there were the warnings story. there were the warnings being ignored. But we also both wanted to play with that. So it wasn't like it was like railroading or anything. Like we knew who that character was. We knew what was going on there. I maybe knew a bit more than you would where that was going to lead. But like there was foreshadowing. Like when I when I had him kind of going after that stuff, there that was the warnings were the foreshadowing. You really shouldn't go find this, but here it is, you know. Well, that's a good point back to what we were saying earlier, where if it's a very central character, like Tony was talking about Castlevania, if you have this central character that you know is supposed to be, you know, continual through your story arc or your general idea of where the story is going, that's the type of person you can use to do that kind of stuff. Because then it's this big reveal in the end, much like I think with the gentleman. Now, we didn't get a lot of information about him early on because you were in Barovia and yada, yada. So you guys understood him through Phineas. But then when you finally meet this guy and things are not what they seem, everyone goes, uh, wait, hold on. What exactly is happening with him? What, what are we supposed to be doing right now? You know, and you have that big kind of whole party. Uh oh moment. Yeah. As yeah. Phineas wants to give the nuclear codes. Yes. 
Phineas has a plan. We, just, we haven't gotten there yet. Phineas has a plan. That's kind of how I remember details more. It's not so much what were all the details as what was I going to do with those details. What's the plan? That's the part I remember. I know what Very I'm going to Hannibal. Do. <laughs> Very Hannibal in the A team. You know, I don't. I'm, we're gonna we're gonna do it. Was well, great when a plan comes together. Here's what my character's gonna do with this stuff. That's the part I remember. <laughs> <laughs> how can I blow up a little bit more of the world? That's actually not a just as a, a slight aside. I think that might be a really good point, not necessarily about foreshadowing as much, but maybe on the player side of things. Um, but the idea that your remembering of a lot of this stuff is because you're remembering it through what is my character trying to do? And when I need certain things to achieve my goal, I'm going to remember where those things lie or what I need to do to maybe get at them. Uh, I think that's just a, an interesting, like a kind of piece of actionable advice that's that's there for anyway. Just... Well, no, actually, I think it's a really good point because when we're talking about trying to get foreshadowing to stick, it's got to be something. You know, it's like it's like the the whole writing. It's it's like the uh, the writing advice. You know, use active words. Mm -hmm. Don't use passive words. Use active words. Don't you know more more verbs, less adjectives. Um, it's sort of the same way. If you're giving them, if you're giving your characters bits of details that they can do something with, that they can take action on, that they that feed the actions they want to take or they can grab onto and, and, and come up with ideas with, those are going to stick a lot better yeah. than just the little details in your world. Because the little details in a D&D &D game, I mean, some players really grok onto them, but a lot of players, you know, your experience of the game is framed by you trying to play this character and frankly do cool things with this character. So, I mean, there's some players that are more storytelling focused and more involved in just kind of hearing your story being told, but really you want to set them up to do something with it. And if they can do something with it, they're more likely to get stuck on it and remember the foreshadowing than if you just kind of give it as like a detail that they don't know what to do with. Mm. Um, I know I, as a player, if I don't know what that detail means or I can't put it in a context where I'm going to do something with it, I will forget it. Like, like, I'm not going to hold on to it just in case. Like, there's just not room in here. I'm going to remember what I want to do. That's a really good. No, it is, it is actually a really good point. Make it very active. Make it player focused. And you could do that by going after perhaps tying something in, not just even specifically to the character, but somewhere in their backstory or goals. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's one of the things I don't do as much of that I probably should do more of. But working in player backstories, working in player, you know, kind of kind of tying things into that. Because that actually that that was something that came up with um, you guys just just kind of just a fault count awful gay, and uh, he had the one character's soul, the one character's or another character's soul in a yeah. in a bottle, and it, that got mentioned, right? So there you go, we're foreshadowing that we can bring Orion into this campaign in one way or another, and that when you go to fight this guy, you might have a chance to get that soul back, right? So I mean, maybe it's a little on the nose foreshadowing, but it's something that Tony's character can do something with. So it sticks. And it's going to drive Erasmus to want to to actively try to petition the party to know we kind of need to do this because it's, you know, the right thing to do. But also this specifically, you know, my friend. So, all right. I feel like we're going pretty deep on kind of in general how we foreshadow what works for us and what doesn't. Um, so why don't we wrap this up with some final thoughts? And specifically, you know, the last question Bewildered and Barovia asked here was how do I set up the narrative to foreshadow major events without beating my players over the head with it or having it go unnoticed? So, 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 so as part of these final thoughts, let's try to address that a little bit, really kind of address that core question 
of how do you for, how do you hit it right in the middle where <laughs> it's it's not beating over the head and it's not being missed. I, I agree with Dave. This should be a soft pitch, but it shouldn't be like us standing there with a megaphone screaming across, you know, blasting everybody over the DM screen either. You can throw out a clue or a possibility of something or maybe the inclination something um, is happening that you're not aware of or the players are not aware of and they can miss that. And that's OK. Just revisit it later in a different form. Keep building to that. There's different levels of foreshadowing. There's, of course, the plot option foreshadowing. Like, hey, you can go do this, which is much more direct. That's like, hey, here's something cool you could do, guys. Open up that, you know, subplot. Or you can start hitting at things about information about characters, about the story, the person you're working for, the supposed villain, so forth and so on. And take a look at your, you know, the secrets surrounding your game. Break them up and consider how and where you want to introduce them throughout the game, gradually, organically. Yeah, I would return to three points. The third point is kind of, well, no, I talked about the third point too, but I really recommend everyone just Google Sly Flourish, Sly Flourish Secrets and Clues. Um, he's written a bunch of articles regarding Secrets and Clues. You could just pop on and read one. Uh it's really an excellent way to pepper in a lot of these narrative points that you want to get, plot development, foreshadowing, whatever you would like to call it, in a way that's much more organic. It's also in a way that is my second point, lets you repeat it. I understand you don't want to beat them over the head with it. You don't want to put it out, this is a clue. But you kind of have to beat them over the head with it to a point. You have to repeat it. Thorne has said it multiple times, and he is absolutely correct. Because once I started doing that, all of a sudden... Everyone was catching all of the clues that I was throwing out, you know. <laughs> so you do have to repeat to a point. But I think things like secrets and clues where it's independent of any specific story point that has to be hit to get it uh, allows for some flexibility. And my last point is be flexible, too. You need to, like I always say, prep for the next session. In a similar way, prep for the next session with some of your narrative, too. You have your overarching idea for the campaign. You have to let the players bounce into that. You have to let their, their agency, their choices, their uh, what they create to matter in the world. If you don't do that, they will feel chained. It will feel more like they're playing through your story. So be flexible with some of those things, like my Amber Temple story, where the player's actions completely opened up the next layer of play that I could do to make this an epic tier uh, campaign beyond Curse of Strahd, the book. So those are my three points there. All right. So and and for me, for my final thoughts, and I've kind of laid out kind of the how I like to have the story unfolding aspect, uh, which is a little more on the nose than, than classic foreshadowing, but you're guaranteed for the players to notice it. Uh, also tying it into what they can do, making it more actionable for the players, again, gives them more reason to notice it. Now, to deal with the specific question here of how can you not beat players over the head with it versus how can you lay it in, how can you make sure it gets noticed? For me, the real key here is to pay attention to the players, especially the first time you mention it. It's noticed if they talk about it to each other. At least in my games, because in my games, I tend to let the players have a lot of time to consider what does that mean? What do we want to do about it? So if they mention it when they're talking to each other, 
your foreshadowing is 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 heavy enough. It's not too soft. If they start joking about it and start being like, oh, so so we've heard this like six times. Of course, this means that. Then you've been too heavy handed. You know, so that's the thing. You want them if you're really doing foreshadowing, you want to give them a chance to kind of talk amongst themselves about what's going on and how they interpret the mystery. And that's going to tell you if you're too soft or too heavy. If it doesn't come up, you're too soft. If it's coming up in a way that's like, oh, well, of course, you know, we've heard that like three times. So clearly he's going to do something with it. Then it's too heavy. But you got to You got to pay attention to the to the players. And one of the big things there is to try to give them every time you foreshadowed, give them a chance somewhere along in there to, to, to talk out loud about what they think's going on. And that'll tell you then, do I need to foreshadow again or do I need to not or, or, or they got have they gotten enough of it where it's where it's playing into their plans enough that, you know, they've gotten it. So as in all things in D&D, if you really want to know, is it too much? Is it too little? Listen to your players. Yeah, that's that's really what it comes down to. Well said. That was a good point, though. With the, if they start <laughs> that, joking like about you it, that. I, they, I've actually had that happen. I've had both of those things happen. Yeah. No. Like if, if they start joking about it, that, is actually a great point. The minute you said, I started laughing because that's totally true. Like, because they're like, yeah. oh, geez, I wonder what that's gonna be, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I guess we maybe should have brought that up in the show a little more hit me at the end. But like it, it's like in everything else. Your players will lead you to the right answer yeah. if you pay attention to them. Uh, so that's something to do. And it's why I love giving them – like we've talked a lot about how my style is a little slower. But I leave space in there for the players to breathe and think through things and discuss things. Sometimes even leave the room. Obviously, in this case, you don't want to leave the room. You want to hear what they're saying. But – I give them a chance to talk it over because once they've talked it over and you can kind of hear what they're talking about, well, now, you know, are they picking up what you're laying down or are they lost? And then you can adjust off of that, you know? So that's, that's why I do it that way. Although at the same time, that's a little slow for Tony. So it doesn't fit every player, but that's why I like to do that. All right, guys. So hopefully we haven't foreshadowed too much of what's coming up in our own campaigns. No, I think we've stolen any of my ideas from my one shot. No, we didn't touch on that one. Mm-mm. Oh yeah, can't wait! Tony's going to be guest uh, guest DMing a Curse of Strahd game. Oh, is that the one that's coming up? Yeah. All right. So if you like what you're hearing, please give us a five star rating in your podcast platform. That really helps the show grow, and we really appreciate anything you can do to help us do that. Tell your friends, pass it along, share it on social media. If you like what you're doing, the best thing you can do for us is share it and help us grow our audience and, and help help more people discover what we're doing here. We don't have a Patreon set up or anything, at least not yet. So that's that's the best way you can help us right now. Today's topic was brought to us by a listener. And thank you again, Bewildered and Barovia, for giving us this great question. Other listeners, like if you want to hear us talk about any problems you have, we love answering listener questions. So you can send it to us at threewisedms at gmail.com. You can go on our website, threewisedms.com, and put it in the what's your problem field. Or you can talk to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're very active on all those social media networks. We would love to be able to help you solve your problems in your game. That's what we're really here for. Three Wise DMs is a podcast for Dungeon Masters with Problems. And that's what we're trying to do here. So hopefully, hopefully what you're listening to is helping you deal with some of your problems. And we can give you more specific advice if you, if you actually send us your problems. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time with Three Wise DMs. <laughs>